the, uh, I'm going to use the text in the book, but the page numbers are exactly the same as what I've given you on the handout. Uh, Leland and I talked this week, I'm going to, and we talked about two things, and he did a little extra research on it, I did as well, uh, and I'm going to spend just a moment on First Clement. Now, for those of you who were not here last uh, week, or maybe the week before, uh, this is our schedule right here, and so we did First Clement last week, and we are on schedule. We're going to do the dedicate today, and next week, and I need to hand these out, so somebody needs to stop me, Leland, that would be you, as we get toward the end. I have a reading guide for this material for next week, and I also have a copy of the letters, uh, they're letters 96 and 97, uh, Pliny wrote Trajan a letter, Trajan you see is the Roman emperor in these dates, so I'm going to hand that material out to you uh, for next week. I am proud to say that yesterday... I saw at the Vanderbilt basketball game a person who told me he had studied his Sunday school lesson for today. Because he clearly told me, John, told me that he had that pleased the teacher. He had studied his Sunday school lesson back in my day, in Celia's day, not so much Brian and Jennifer's day, I guess. Saturday night, what did we do? Those of you who are in our age, Phil, I bet Karen, the Shrigley. Saturday night, you start getting ready about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, get your bath if you're not going to take one the next morning, get your bath, study your Sunday school lesson, and it was usually the Gospel Advocate Sunday school lesson. John, thank you for being such a good answer. Never mind, memorize your memory verse for Sunday school. That's right. You know, in my church down in North Alabama, we had a memory verse every week, and they took a tally of everybody that could say it. It was turned into the office. <laughs> that is the honest truth. Florence, Alabama, you know it well. I went to that church as a college student. They didn't make us do that. Yeah, well, things changed. Not much there, but they changed. Okay, enough with the frivolity. Um, first thing I want to read from uh, First Clement, and I will have to move through this fast. Um, and, and I thought Leland had great insight on this that First Clement probably written about the same time as the book of Revelation. Okay, that's kind of an interesting connection. Think about the book of Revelation and its message clothed as it was in the uh, apocalyptic uh, material and what it said about the Roman Empire. Clement writing from Rome Eusebius, writing two or three hundred years later, said that Clement was the third bishop of Rome, the third removed from Paul and Peter. And he does say Paul and Peter. Uh, so he's the third bishop. That's who Clement was. This is what he said about the powers that existed in the world at that time. This is Clement. I just thought it would be interesting for you to hear this, because I don't think we mentioned it last week, did you? In relation to how Revelation writes. And then we're going to get to the Didache. But he said this. This is a prayer that Clement wrote in 1 Clement. 
He's talking to God. Grant that we may be obedient to your almighty and glorious name and to our rulers and governors on earth. Now, Clement's in Rome. He's where the big boys live. So he's a little sensitive to making sure that he doesn't have any wires crossed with them. You, Master, that being God, gave them imperial power through your majestic and indescribable might so that we, recognizing it was you who gave them the glory and honor, might submit to them and in no way oppose your will. Grant them, Lord, health, peace, harmony, and stability so that they may give no offense in administering the government you have given them. For it is you, Master, the heavenly king of, of eternity, who gave the sons of men glory and honor and authority over the earth's people. Direct their plans, O Lord, in accord with what is good and pleasing to you, so that they may administer the authority you have given them with peace, considerateness, and reverence, and so win your mercy. For those of you who have the books, that is on page 72. It's in chapter 61. That's Clement's prayer to God for the uh, rulers that existed at that time. Now, the second thing I want to mention in Clement, this is in uh, toward the end of the book. This is in chapter 63. Um, I asked Leland to research this from his perspective so that he could see if I'm somewhat uh, on board or, or out of place in this. I believe that Clement claimed to be inspired when he wrote. Now that may not be any great revelation. It may not, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what that means. But we both looked at it pretty closely. And in uh, chapter 63 of 1 Clement, remember this is a guy that Eusebius later on called the third or fourth bishop of Rome. He says, uh, this is Clement writing, Yes, you will make us exceedingly happy if you prove obedient to what we, prompted by the Holy Spirit, have written. Now, as Leland pointed out to me, and I recognized as well, really, all Clement is saying is that you've paid attention to what I have written through the Holy Spirit. The word prompted is, is just the translator's decision to use that word. Uh, but, it, but Clement is saying in his book that he wrote, and he wants them to pay attention to what he wrote, because what he wrote was through the Holy Spirit. Uh, we'll look at this word in just a minute. It's this word right here that is translated through that this translator translated prompted. But anyway, those are two things about Clement that I wanted just to get out there. I think it is significant that Clement claimed inspiration. Okay. Now, Blythe... My oldest granddaughter is in class. Blythe, would you please read this line right here for me? Can you read that? No, you can't read that. Okay. Well, that's the first line of the Didache. 
And uh, this word right here is the first line in the writing, and it's the word that is really transliterated, and it becomes what we call the Didache. Uh, this is the uppercase delta. This is simply a lowercase delta. Didache, and this just means teaching. That's all in the world it is. So teaching of Lord through the 12 apostles to the nations. That is, or to the Gentiles. That is the first line of the Didache. Uh, at first it was a little confusing to me as to why this totally Christian document was written to the nations. Well, uh, and Leland kind of put me on to this. Uh, this word right here appears in the New Testament in various forms, but it appears in the New Testament in several places. In fact, I've listed three places where this word appears, and in most cases, it's translated Gentiles. So I think what we're faced with here is that the Didache, and as we look at it in detail, and hopefully as you've read it some, you will see that it's... Um, that this is a writing, I think, to Gentile Christians uh, and a very early writing to Gentile Christians. So what we read here is going to be to uh, uh, Gentiles who have converted to Christianity. Jerry, is that the word translated in English here as heathen? Yes, it is. That's exactly right. That's kind of... And it is the word, it is the same word is found in most translations of the New Testament today and it's translated Gentile. So this is the first line. That's where this strange name Didache comes from. We could just as easily have called it uh, teaching instead of Didache. But that's a transliteration of the word. Uh, this is a summary of some of the background material that are the setting that we know about this text. Uh, John was just asking me earlier, we don't know who wrote it. Uh, we don't know if it was one single writer. Uh, you would have to really dig into textual criticism to determine whether it was one single writer or if it's a compilation. Uh, some scholars think it's a compilation. It very well could be. The uh, early sections the way of life, way of death that are, that are in here uh, look like they may have come from maybe some other source. I think that's a possibility. The translation that we use primarily is this one right here. It's the one that's uh, the book, and then it's also the one that's on the handout. Uh, the dates range anywhere from about the time of Paul, which is probably a little early, to the early second century. Uh, so extremely early, and I think that has relevance to what we're going to read in this text. I think it makes us uh, consider what does it mean that what we're reading here in the Didache was written as early, to the, as, as close to the apostolic writings as you can possibly get. The setting, Syria or Egypt, um, I mean, I'm just basing this on what I have really seen other people write. There are indications in here that it might have been uh, Syria or around Judea and then other indications. 
that might be Egypt. I think the primary reason Egypt is considered to have been a location is simply because I think this document was highly revered in the Egypt Alexandria area and so people think well since it's so highly revered there it may have originated there. But whereas First Clement originated in Rome this would be more into the eastern part of the Mediterranean. And I think one thing that as we read these documents we need to keep, we need to try to understand as much of the background and setting as we can because that will have a bearing on uh, some of the interpretation. Like First Clement, written from Rome. Uh, Revelation, written way over to the east in Revelation. So there could be different perspectives and different ways of approaching the Roman emperors because one was in Rome and one's in a different location. So that's probably enough to cover that. Yes, Leland. I was going to say, I found it interesting that in 1873, when they found this document, uh, yeah. there was just a lot of excitement because there were many references to it. There were right. little quotations. They didn't from have it, it before. But they, nobody had ever seen it right. up until this guy um, found it. Exactly Constantinople, I think. Yeah, in a in a very well preserved book. Right. And and uh, Where was apparently that? people were really excited about finally getting to see yeah. the document. What'd you say? Where was it found? I think I think Constantinople. Does anybody know better? Was yeah. it not Istanbul at that point? Uh, in like the I don't know if it was Istanbul then. Or not. I think it was still called Constantinople then, wasn't it? I, but it's Istanbul today, yeah. You're right. See over here where I list the Apostolic Fathers, the Didache would be one of the last added to the official list of Apostolic Fathers because it wasn't located until 1873. But obviously it is Istanbul today. I, in what I've read, they talk about it being discovered in Constantinople, or published in Constantinople, at least. Okay, anybody else with another question? We're going to get to content very soon. Now here's content. Um, we'll read a little bit from the way of life, way of death. There's some interesting uh, things that he says, this is what you need to be doing. Sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount, at least in the first chapter it does. And then he gets into some very strict, specific uh, don'ts. Baptism. Uh, we're going to look at what he says about baptism. It's fairly significant that he says some things about baptism that are not in line with what we understand the New Testament to say. And this is extremely early. So what are the implications of that? Prayer and fasting. The Eucharist, which is communion, Lord's Supper. Here it is specifically labeled as the thanksgiving, which is transliterated the Eucharist. He talks about prophets and teachers, Lord's Day gatherings, which I find interesting, uh, the community of believers in the last days. Only 16 chapters. Some of them are fairly short. Now, I'm going to see what kind of response I get to this. If 
I don't get very much, then, you know, I've got to punt and do something else. But that's okay. I can do it, I think. Um, text, I'd like for you to help me identify some text that seem like they come right out of the New Testament. And then teachings that are not found in the New Testament, but sound like they could have been, should have been. Sorry, I'm in your way, Bill. Then teachings that seem to contradict or go beyond New Testament teaching. And there are a few in there that contradict or go beyond what you find. And then statements that, I just tried to cover the whole territory here, that inspire, inform, provide insight, or raise questions. And there are several in there. statements about that are theological. And then at the very end, after we've had a little bit of discussion, uh, I want us to look at some concluding observations. So we can do this a number of ways. I can read some things, but let me hear from you. Does anybody have a text that you've identified that seems like it just came right out of the New Testament from this? Anybody? Lord's Prayer, where is the Lord's Prayer in this? It is. Look at, uh, I'll be able to locate it, I think. Somebody help me. Um, Here it is, chapter 8. It's right after uh, he writes about fasting, or it's within the same chapter. Don't pray like the hypocrites. This is in verse 2. This is chapter 8, verse 2. Pray as follows. And then that's almost... is. Isn't that almost exactly like the Lord's Prayer in Matthew? Now look what he adds. Look at verse 3. You need to do this three times a day. Now that's a different twist. But, you know, and that shouldn't be alarming, really. And we'll talk about changes we see here. How do we understand the changes that we see from the New Testament period to this period. So, not only does he repeat the Lord's Prayer, he says, guys, you need to do it three times a day. Well, while we're on this, look at what he says about fasting. Look at the first part of chapter 8. Your fast must not be identical with those of the hypocrites. Now, if you look at the note that the translator here writes, he is interpreting hypocrites to mean Jews here. This is not a strong anti-Jewish piece. In fact, it shows a great deal of connection with Judaism. But here he's saying, I want, don't, he said, they fast, the hypocrites fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Okay, guys, I want you to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays wants to make a difference in uh, practice perception from who he calls the hypocrites, which apparently are Jews, and uh, their practice as Christians. Okay, thank you. Very good, Lord's Prayer. There's a lot of 
every page there's items that come directly from it, but then he goes on to elaborate and add, and I want you to, like that, and yeah. I do it on Wednesday and Thursday. That's right. <laughs> you started out okay, but where did you, you kind of... Fasting is in the New Testament, certainly, sure. so he just adds a little bit. You know, like baptism is in here the same way. He starts off consistent, and then he kind of goes off. <laughs> And we'll try to figure out why does he go off? Why are he, are they? That's, that's what is amazing. David, you're so right. Now, you need to do it this way. Ah, but if you can't, do it this way. Ah, if you can't do it this way, then here's another way you can do it. We don't take that much liberty uh, that much today. Uh, look at anybody else with another one that texts that seem like they come right out of the New Testament. Lord's Prayer is definitely a good one. David's right. There are a lot of different ones. Lord's Supper is here. Baptism is here. Um, uh, traveling Preachers is here. You've got a lot of the same elements and ingredients in this text that you find in the canonical writings. Uh, Look, if you want to, I'll just cite it. Yeah, David, go ahead. They are, my perception is we've become more lenient over the years with what we're referring to as the Eucharist. Growing up, I would have been very much consistent with what he says here. Um, don't let anyone partake of the Eucharist. Uh, they're not uh, believers. And I I would, you know, I see my kids. They let them take it. They're very, he's very strict in here. He is, but is that not more strict than the New Testament? It is, isn't it? You don't find anything in the New Testament that's maybe it's implied, but you don't have anything in. See, I would put that one down here in this category a little bit, and I'll give you an interesting insight to something. Do you realize? that one of our forefathers, Thomas Campbell, objected to his Presbyterian heritage because they practiced closed communion. They, of course they were all Christians, but you had to be the right kind of Christian. Presbyterians, see Thomas Campbell, one of our forefathers, believed in open communion. And he wanted, of course he would have said anyone within the Christian sphere, but he wanted anyone to be able to take care, uh, take communion, and he was kicked out of the Presbyterian. There may have been some other reasons, but I think this may have been the practical thing that flushed him out of the uh, Presbyterian church was the fact that he, in his church, would not practice closed communion. And so the Presbyterians, uh, I think they excommunicated him because of that. But... You're, that is a statement, I think, David, where he goes beyond what the New Testament actually says, though you might argue it's implied there. John? Is there any indication if these were suggestions, what was done in certain places, or were they bound? Or is there any indication of... I don't know. You'd, you'd have to make that judgment from just reading the text. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know that I could cite something that would allow me to answer that question. I don't. He's saying, don't let people stay more than two days. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or you got to fast before you're baptized. I mean, there's things. Oh, yeah. And, uh, mm. you know, if you're bound or. One argument could be that he's simply taking what he understands to be the New Testament witness 
and applying it to the circumstances and the situation of the people he's writing to and that there are adjustments made in what he says and maybe even extra added requirements in some instances. Trish? Well, I, I was just thinking he he's, was like us in very many ways because when he was talking about the close communion, he quotes, do not give what is sacred to yeah. dogs. Yeah. So he's quoting the Bible. Yes, he is. To get, to, to get his own purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's, and he's interpreting that to support what he what is, he what he's suggesting, right, the, or what they are suggesting. The question under this then is, do these later leaders have the right to add to the gospel as in the council? And I think that's the deeper issue as to whether this is... is well, that's, that's a central question that I think we will wrestle with here and we'll have to wrestle with individually. Um, you remember the statement that Everett Ferguson, that we quoted from Everett Ferguson two weeks ago. Everett Ferguson said, we are just like the second century. We're trying to take the apostolic witness and apply it to our day and time. And that's what this person or these people are wrestling with doing. Taking the apostolic witness and applying it to the circumstance of the people to whom they are writing. And it means that there are adjustments, changes, alterations. To Jerry, I think that's a great point you're making because what it feels like to me is exactly what I kind of grew up in with respect in the very traditional Church of Christ. I, my grandparents went to a one-cup church. Does anyone know what that is? Like, that's where they, they took, they said, well, the, it says that he took the cup, singular. Uh, so we've yeah. got to do that with one cup. So we all pass one cup around and drink out of it. And I remember thinking there as a teenager going, odd thing. Like, what happened? And I was reading in the Bible about, oh, but it says that he, he divided it among them and then blessed it. And then, and I, I was like, wait a minute, he divided it among them. So I went and showed the preacher after, I said, I'm a 14-year-old kid. I'm like, hey, uh, you know, this whole one cup thing, you know, it's like there's a, but he divided it among them before he blessed it. So did they just hold it in their mouth with the one cup? I was like, how did he do that? And he was like looking at it and he was like, but it says he took one cup. I'm like, oh, Okay. What I feel like this is doing is a little bit of that. It's like we, we are so prone as human beings, I think, to create structure, and it's a, it is a little bit legalistic. I mean, I see that in... And he in, has his own legalism. Yes, like, oh, it's got to be Wednesday and Friday. Mm -hmm. you know, like these, it's these got things. to be two days, three yes, days, no yes. more. But then we, we make those structures, and then we kind of like condemn those that don't follow the structures we just made, which we have to be very careful of, I think. Yep. And even taking, I think, a bit out of context, do not give your sake what is sacred to the dogs here in the context of the open Eucharist. I mean, that's a quote from the Sermon on the Mount. You go back yeah. and read what Jesus was, sort of the context of that is probably not at all about closing the Eucharist off. No. People, you know? It's so, his application of right. that. Yes, Fletcher. I remember going to a church in the country and I think they probably thought they were practicing one cup. But my recollection is that they actually had two cups. 
But they started yes. with one. No, they started with, they had two cups sitting there. And so one side would get one cup and the other side. That's compromise. I think what's significant is that we do want that structure. We want, the human part of us wants that checklist. I mean, even, even when, after the Lord's Prayer, he says, then do it three times a day. Yeah. And, and again, there's certainly something wonderful about doing it three times a day. But that prescription, I think, is so seductive that, that I want that list. And, oh, I can take that off. I've done that. Then I don't have to really wrestle with what that prayer is supposed to do to my life. It's very objective and clear. And this gets a little bit to what John brought up. Are these suggestions or is this prescribed <laughs> stuff? I think he's simply writing to help a group of people who want to be Christian to understand what's involved in living out in daily life Christian living and it's what's right and good for them in that circumstance and what may be right and good for somebody else in some other circumstance could be different. Can I maybe add yes, one sure. element to that? I think that I'm pretty much on board with everything that's being said here um, and I do think you can, this has a kind of smack of legalism to it. At the same time, I think that rather than kind of just pushing that to the side, we can also maybe think about how it's representing a very early tradition that's seeking to live this out. So if we're trying to do this 2,000 years later, to think that we um, maybe don't have anything to learn from that extra piece, I think is to, is to, um, to ignore this you know, 18, 1900 year gap between men and us. So when he's teaching about baptism, or the Lord's prayer, or whatever it might be, I think it is worth stopping and saying, you know, they had discerned, or I, I assume this is a community that's kind of bringing this up, they had discerned early on that this might be a wise way of doing this. Mm -hmm. So even if we might not fully agree, what is it about? What, what's the wisdom behind this that we can still take with us? And I agree with that. I, and that's something, that's a, a tone and insight that I hope carries us through this whole study. We have been and I grew up thinking, and even through my education, apostasy started at 100, or somewhere in there, maybe 75, and then just carried on through until Thomas and Alexander got here, and you know, whenever they got here. And very little appreciation for theological development and the insight that it provides. To give you one little clue, I had always, and I think this has some relevance, and I, I hope, Josh, it has relevance to what you're saying. Um, I'd always argued that the Bible came into existence by the providence of God. You know, there was no council that decided these 27 books in the New Testament were going to be our 27. That it was a, it was simply the way things worked out, primarily by usage, by appreciation among the the Christians at that time. So it simply came about that somewhere in the fourth century these 27 books were accepted. But I always thought, and I've heard other people argue, that's through the uh, providence of God. But I never took the providence of God over to theological development. Uh, 
to other kinds of development. I, and I heard little snippets of that in what you were just saying. And this class and reading these materials has led me to at least challenge myself with that thought. Maybe reading about the Didache and all these others that we're going to be reading, maybe God was overseeing that theological development. Now, where that leads us, I'm not sure. Does that make sense to you? Does that kind of fit with some yeah, of what I think so. you're um, saying? Yeah, there is this, this kind of slow shaping um, that's, that's in line with, with early, you know, what scattered kind of documents that they had. And like the rule of faith is, you guys remember the rule of faith? Something like the Apostles' Creed is also. Yeah. So Irenaeus can say, even illiterate barbarians know this. So as they're doing this discernment about what's scripture, what's not, they've also got this kind of condensed, okay, we know this, but even that needs to get fleshed out yeah, some right. as different heresies arise. And it's fleshed out over time. Yeah. Um, anybody else? Uh, yes, Lee. I was going to say, in my limited reading, I don't know of a quotation, you know, 4th, 5th, 6th century that says, as the teachings of the apostles told us we should whatever do this on Wednesdays and Fridays or, mm. or that sort of a reference but maybe it exists but in the fact that this was preserved in multiple copies of copies and ends up in a book in the 11th century right and was highly respected, apparently there was a number of people during those 10 centuries that thought something positive about it. Would have looked to this for some guidance yeah. in yeah. some way. I'll make one last comment. Yes, sir. It's, it's, um, I think I've noticed this sometimes in Church of Christ. I mean, I mean, I see myself as a part of Church of Christ, but we... You didn't grow up in Churches of Christ, did you? No, no. You went to Columbia Academy, yeah, though. Yeah. 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 See, I know, I know, <laughs> I know your background. Yeah. So I think sometimes we, there's been this distinction between what's canonical and then everything else is kind of, you know, okay. Whereas the early church seemed to see canonical, useful but not canonical, and then other stuff. And this seems to be that that category of. There's wisdom here. It's yeah. not canon. We're not yeah. going to feel bound by it. Right. But we are going to respect that it has something to show yeah. us. I, I agree. In that middle tier we've kind of abandoned or have lost maybe. And we shouldn't. We should look at it for some insight, I think, today. Uh, anybody else? Just one thing. Yes, for Just this kind of a macro comment. Um, but it strikes me that whoever wrote this and blessed it wanted to err on the side of clarity. like our, our times and cultures goes the other way. We just assume kind of leave it alone or leave it open. Do you think it's possible that that whoever was writing this or compiled it knew that the people to whom he was writing needed Correct. specific clarity? And that that's why you find some of the things here. I, I think that's I think that's right. And that they needed they needed the clarity, whoever they happened to be. Um, I want to read something that I'm not reading this just to tantalize you, but um, maybe it's doing that. I don't know. Let's see. 
Uh, these are lists of texts that, to me, seemed like they came right out of the New Te uh, out of the New Testament. He refers to bishops and deacons. In this, uh, we've already looked at Sermon on the Mount a little bit in the fir very first chapter, Lord's Prayer. Bishops and deacons. There doesn't seem to be a highly structured uh, uh, episcopate at this particular time. So that's one indication that it was probably very early because you still have the New Testament organizational structure referred to bishops and deacons. Um, teachings not found in the New Testament but ring true. You might not agree with that first one, but this is, I thought it was significant. I read this about abortion. It's specific, and every translation that I looked at, and I have three up here with me, Use it, uses this. Look at 2 2. These, this is where the don'ts are. Uh, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not corrupt boys. Do not fornicate. Do not steal. Do not practice magic. Do not go in for sorcery. Do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. You don't find anything that clear and straightforward in the New Testament, do you? Clarity. Thank you, Fred. <laughs> Clarity. I've got three other trans. I, I looked at it, tried to translate it myself and my translation skills. They are slow, and I can muddle through it, but I didn't trust mine as much as I, I did some of these. Uh, this translation, same thing. Uh, one of them is even uh, clearer than that. Uh, but you, that is pretty clear in what it says right there. And that's uh, a very clear denunciation of abortion. Now, why? Why do you think? Why? You don't see it in the New Testament, do you, with that clarity? But here, you see it extremely clear. It was not uncommon for the form child or child with And, that, and he said, don't kill a newborn infant. Yeah. Don't kill a newborn infant. Don't kill one that is uh, that has not yet been born. I mean, this is early New Testament teaching. Uh, no, I said that wrong. No, no. <laughs> this is early Christian teaching, not New Testament. Yeah, to, the, to the extent that some of this may be you know, it's a snapshot into how they were doing things. Yeah. It's a snapshot into, you know, that one, for example, it may be the response to a lot of questions that people had. Okay, you've said don't murder and don't even have hate in your heart. Don't. That's right. So how, what does that mean specifically? And that's when you, you know, and so maybe it's answering some questions and putting yep. some parameters on the thing. That's right. Due to the specific circumstance, which would mean questions, circumstances of the people he's writing to. So uh, there's the sin uh, list of sins, and then they comes back in chapter 5 and talks about the ways of death and basically enumerates the sins again, mm -hmm. or at least yeah. recharacterizes them. But yeah. there are a couple words in there that I don't recall being translated that way in English in the New Testament that struck me. One was duplicity, mm. and the other one was audacity. Mm -hmm. 
and I found those to be. Uh, Let's see, where are they? I'm in chapter five, toward the bottom of the page. The way of death. And the ways of death. Yeah. And I thought here again, uh, maybe ring true. And unless there's some interpretation that I'm just not familiar enough with between the mm -hmm. Greek and the New Testament, I don't think we see those words. I don't recall them being translated, as you, I think you're saying, yeah. translated that way at all. I would, and maybe I'll, I'll do that, I'll look up what the word is and see if it appears in the New Testament someplace and see how it is translated in the New Testament. Yeah, John. Do what? Diplocardia. So like Duplicity. So cardia, you hear heart in the back. Uh -huh. Too hard. Oh. Uh, that, that very much fits the New Testament. Is it, does it fit? Is, does it appear in the New Testament? I don't know that. But the, the idea of having two, oh, yeah. two hearts. Well, double-minded mi double concept. So the concept yeah. is there, whether the word is there or not. And But we can easily see how it's translated in the New Testament if it appears there. I don't want us to, to leave. Uh, I know we're getting... Baptism. Listen to this. Now, yes, please. Pliny next week, Pliny and Trajan, two non-Christians. We're going to look at early non-Christian writings next week. You have the text and you'll have a study guide. I'll also, for those of you that I make sure I cover my bases, I will send it out to you electronically. Okay, listen to what it says about baptism. He says, this is how to baptize. And that's pretty clear. Give public instruction on all these points and then baptize in running water. I guess we could turn the faucet on, let the drain, and it's running water. My grandfather believed at the old country church that you had to go down to the creek. Yep. And a lot of them were baptized. They didn't have baptistry, so they were in the creek. But running water was important. You couldn't go to the pond. You had to go to the creek. He's got his proof text right there. Uh, baptized in running water, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Ah, but, here's David. If you do not have running water, baptize in some other. If you, let's see, if you cannot in cold water, then do it in warm water. Why cold water? I don't know. <laughs> Freeze the sins, maybe. We've definitely turned that one on. That, that's right. <laughs> some people it's have been baptized. <laughs> We should turn off the heater. If you have neither, boy, this, this gets us Church of Christ people here pretty good, then pour water on the head three times. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, before the baptism, moreover, the one who baptizes and the one being baptized must fast. Whew, that'd be hard for me. I'd have to fast before I baptize somebody. And then you can read the rest for yourself. Um, what do we do with that? What do you do with it? Is it simple apostasy? Just pure old, they didn't care what the apostles said. You know, that's kind of the way we, we've approached it. Ah, they just wanted to do it their own way. They didn't want to follow God. Is that really what this is about? I guess, it, to me, it, 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 again, it, it, it seems like a reaction to things that were going on at the time. This was something that was growing quickly. And so 
you probably had people who were making rational decisions. So for the fasting, I think it's a, it seems to me like a good example of they saw people who were acting quickly and they maybe at the time it made sense for them to say, you know what, you need to think about it for a couple Slow of days. Down. That's not the way Jesus said it and it's not the way a lot of apostles who took people straight down to be baptized did it, but in the context of their time that may have been something that made some sense. Which gets us back to this very point that there is legitimacy, perhaps. Oh, wait. Oh, I know you're ready to go. Uh, maybe I can put this up next time. Ah, these are my observations. I'll start with this uh, next time. You can read them real quickly. These are my takeaways from this. But if we give this any legitimacy at all, then it seems to tell us that there are circumstances and situations where... Uh, oh, could I go so far as to say adjustments, different things can be done because of different circumstances? No. David says no. So these are views of men trying yeah. to interpret the Bible just like we try to That's true. Yeah, that is true. 2,000 years from now say, well, David said it this way, so that must have been okay. <laughs> I don't think that's our place to do that. I'm not advocating that we start pouring. But, <laughs> but... Pouring for these people seemed to be suitable. Thank y'all. See you next time.